So, I don't know what it was like for you to get here this morning, but you're here, and so you should congratulate yourself for getting here. Good job. Maybe you've been like me, and you've had other mornings where it's not so simple getting here, or maybe it wasn't simple for you to get here at all. You know those mornings, so maybe if you're, you're single, maybe it's like this, you you know, you're trying your best to get to church, but everything is going wrong, and you, you spill the coffee on yourself, or you can't find the car keys, and you're running late, and you're hitting all the red lights, and everything is going wrong that can. Now, if, maybe if you're married or you're coming to church with someone else, all those same things happen. The coffee spills, and you're running late, but it's all their fault, and then you're spiraling in like a different direction, and you're getting upset. But then you have like the trifecta if you've got yourself and your spouse that's doing everything wrong, and then your children are not obeying, and they're not getting ready, and they're the ones spilling things and making you late, then if you're like me, what can happen is even on your way to church, while you're trying to do a good thing, you can just start spiraling down the spiral of sin, and you're saying things you didn't want to say, and you're thinking things you didn't want to think, and all of a sudden you're like, ah, I just want to go to church and worship, but now I'm pulling in the parking lot, and I'm fully loaded with sin. And so the question we want to answer this morning is, how do we worship after we have sinned? How do we worship after we have sinned? Now, that's sort of a, um, maybe a relatable uh, scenario for all of us. But it's also a pretty light one. Um, as we live long enough, we realize uh, there are certain severities to some of the sins. And, and uh, sometimes as we want to worship God, we are haunted with past sins. And we've been reminded in recent weeks that it's not just on Sundays that we worship. We really want to be people that are maintaining this attitude of worship throughout our weeks as we go to work, as we enjoy our hobbies. We want this, this spirit of gratitude to be within us for who God is and what he has done. And so then it becomes all the more an interesting question, not just on Sundays, how do I worship after I've sinned, but all through the week, how do I worship after I've sinned? And I think Psalm 130 is going to give us a good answer. So that's what we're going to look at together this morning. We're in a series on the Psalms of Ascent, and this is one of those Psalms of Ascent. We're calling it Worship on the Way, and we're learning how we can worship God all through our days. And so in Psalm 130, it gives us, I think, an answer to this question. And so I'll read it for you. It's from the English Standard Version. You have it on the screens there as I read. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The three answers I see in the psalm are these. I see that we, we cry out to God, we wait for God, and we hope in God. So what do I do? How do I worship after I've sinned? I cry out to God, I wait for him, and I hope in him. So let's see how the psalm unpacks in that way. So we cry out to God is in verse one. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Now, there's all kinds of depths we can be in in life, and they're not all related to our sins, 
to our own personal sins necessarily. We can be in the depths of sorrow. We can be in the depths of confusion. We can be in the depths of poverty. And any of these depths that we might fall into aren't necessarily any fault of your own through your own personal sin. But they're also not particularly what the psalmist is addressing in Psalm 130. In Psalm 130, the psalmist is saying that he is in the depths because of his sin. That's why in the following verses, in verses 2 and 3 and 4, he's talking about the iniquities. He says in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you might be feared. The psalmist is working his way through this, this guilt. He is in the depths because he knows he has sinned. And the particular depths that he is in is the guilt and the shame of his sin. And so we all go to the depths for different reasons, but this one is for this guilt of sin. And it's probably something for the psalmist more than just those Sunday morning routines that go uh, haywire on the way to church. We think that maybe David wrote this psalm. And if it was David that wrote this psalm, we could think through his life and try to imagine, well, I wonder what the psalmist had in mind. And if it was David, it could just be possible that what haunted his memories, what gave him guilt and shame was this sort of cardinal sin of David's with Bathsheba. So if, if you're not familiar with the story, let me just retell it for you quickly. David became this mighty and powerful king of Israel. He sent the armies off to do battle and he stayed back at his palace and he was up on the rooftop one night looking out over his kingdom and he saw beautiful Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop and he exercised his kingly power and called for her to come to his palace and then he exercised his kingly power as he wished with her in his palace. Then he went on from there to say, you know what, I really want her to be mine and so he sent her husband out into the front lines of the battle so that he wouldn't come home. And so we have David then with Bathsheba. He has her, and then she gives birth to his son who dies. And David is in the depths of the guilt for his sin. God sends a prophet to comes along. Nathan comes, and he helps David see that it is his sin that has done this. And you have this explicitly clear in Psalm 32 that David wrote. When he wrote this, he said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. So in Psalm 32, David's very explicit, saying how he felt when he was down in the depths of his sin. But then he writes in Psalm 32 how he felt the forgiveness of God come into his life, and how that physically relieved him of this pain and this groaning as he experienced the forgiveness of God for his sin with Bathsheba. But what I wonder is how Psalm 130 fits in. And I wonder if maybe Psalm 130 is about how our past sins can haunt us. About how we can confess them and, and experience the forgiveness of God. But even days or weeks or years or decades can go by. And we say, God, how do I worship? 
when I have that sin in my past. And we can quickly spiral, thinking about those sins from our past, down, 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 down into the depths, like David is in the depths from the guilt of his sin. Maybe your past sins are similar to David's. Maybe there's adultery in your past. Maybe you abused your power. Maybe you manipulated a situation to hurt someone. Maybe it was your sin that has caused other people to suffer. Or maybe it's different than David's altogether. Maybe you struggle with a besetting sin, one that just keeps coming back and coming back. Maybe you have this critical spirit that you just can't stop. Maybe greed just keeps flaring up in your motivations. Maybe it's gossip that you just can't stop. Maybe you have this pride or this selfishness or this self-centeredness. Whatever it is, it's in your story. You say, you know what I want to do? I want to worship God. But you know, it's very difficult because I have this sin in my past. What am I to do? And David says, here's what you need to do. You need to cry out to God. You say, I feel like just going down deeper. I feel like hiding from God. But David is telling us, no, that's not the solution. When you're in the depths, you cry out to God. And what kind of God is he? He's a God that extends mercy. He's a God who, yeah, if, if you were in God's presence and all your iniquities were marked on you, who could stand? But that's not how God is. If you cry out to him, he listens and he gives mercy and he forgives. We serve a God who forgives. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. We've all done things that we aren't proud of. Some of these things, as recently as this morning, or maybe last night, or maybe a very long time ago, how do we worship when we have sinned, well, we approach this God who meets us in the depths and says, I'm here and I forgive you. I hear you and I extend my mercy. The most interesting line to me in this whole passage is the one that says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Because it's just not how anyone would write. The fear of the Lord is this interesting sort of riddle in Scripture. We try to translate it and understand it. It has a different context. It has a different understanding in the ancient Hebrew language, this idea of the fear of the Lord. So we think of fear, and we think I'm very scared of something. But as we study Scripture, we begin to understand that this language of the fear of the Lord, it means fear, but it also means respect and honor. It means astonishment or awe. And so what it means is we should have tremendous respect for God. We should honor him. We should be astonished by him. Why? Because of his forgiveness. Perhaps the most well-known story in all of scripture that has just transcended time, perhaps better than any other story in scripture, is the story of the prodigal son. Even in our secular society today, a lot of people that you're going to run into may not know much about the Bible, but they might understand the story of the prodigal son. They might remember it. For those of us who need a reminder of it, right, there's a very wealthy and loving father who has a spoiled rich son who goes to the father and says, I really prefer that you'd be dead so that I could have my money now. And the father says, I'll give you your money now. And he goes off, takes the money from his father and engages in all kinds of wild and sinful living and wastes all his money 
until he has spiraled down into the depths and he is living with pigs, eating the slop of the pigs. And it occurs to him that his father's servants live a better life than this, so he returns back to the father. And as the story goes, the father sees the sons coming off way in the distance, and the father gets up and runs to his son and embraces him in his arms, gives him the cloak off of his back, gives him the ring off of his finger, and celebrates and throws a party for his son who once was lost and now is found. And all of us read the story, and we are blown away and astonished and in awe of the love of the Father, specifically of the forgiveness of the Father. How could anyone be so forgiving? How could anybody respond that way when abused and taken advantage of? If you pay close attention to the books you read or the shows you watch or the movies that you watch, and you think about the characters that astonish you, Let's look them up and let's think about them. And I bet you there are characters who astonish you because of their forgiveness. And they resonate in your memory because you just can't believe anybody would forgive that much. And they're the hero of the story because of their forgiveness. It's because the human heart just craves forgiveness. And so we respect the Father and we are in awe of the Father because of his forgiveness. So you are, if you are plagued with guilt from the past... The Heavenly Father wants you to know, cry out, and I am full of mercy, and I will forgive. Cry out and experience that forgiveness. But there is also this question of timing. There's this issue of timing. So the forgiveness is there, and yet the very next words of the psalmist have to do with the timing of things. So he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Waiting on the Lord is perhaps one of the most difficult things that you and I are tasked with as human beings in the world today. But to be fair, God isn't surprising us with this struggle. He's been pretty explicit. He had Peter write in 2 Peter 3.8, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So his perception of time and your perception of time aren't the same. That's why in some of the final words of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7, it says, look, I am coming soon. And then you say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. And so when I tell my wife I'll be home soon, like I'm pretty safe because it's been thousands of years, and he said he was coming soon. The only way to make sense of it is to realize that with a day, it's like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years for him is like a day. So it's been a couple of days since Jesus said he was coming soon. And so waiting is difficult. It's just built into our faith. God has let us know it's going to be a challenge. You read through Scripture, it is just a story of people waiting Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, right, because of their sin. If you're paying close attention to the words that the Lord spoke to the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, you would have noticed him say that there's coming a day in which the offspring of Eve would crush this serpent's head. This serpent that represents evil, one of her offspring's going to crush the head of evil. And so humanity waited and waited and waited for the offspring of Eve. Noah builds an ark. He's faithful to God. And there's this massive boat, and there he is, waiting 
on it to rain. Abraham has this promise from God that he's going to be a mighty nation, but he has no son. And so he waits and he waits and he waits for a son to be born to him. The children of Israel are stuck in slavery in Egypt, waiting on God to liberate them. Moses is wandering with the children of Israel in the, in the, in the wilderness, waiting to get into the promised land. They get into the promised land, and then invaders come, and they take over the promised land. They take the children of God into exile, and they wait in exile to return to the promised land. And then the people of God are back in the promised land, but they're living under Roman oppression, just waiting for their Messiah to come and set them free. And Jesus comes. And then he ascends into heaven, and he says, just wait. I'll send the Holy Spirit. And just wait. I'm coming soon. So we wait, and we wait. Waiting can be difficult. If I said to my kids, do you want to come with me today? And we can go somewhere and wait in line all day. We can just, I mean, for hours and hours, we can wait in line together. Do you want to come with me? And they will say, no. But if I say, kids, You want to go to Kennywood today? They're going to say, oh yeah. They're going to jump up and down in excitement. Why? Because it all matters what you're waiting for. It's very important what you're waiting for. So when we were at Kennywood the other day, we all had never been on the Raging Rapids. And so we decided we enter the park, we're going to go straight to the Raging Rapids. So we get there, we approach Raging Rapids, and there's a sign up that says, ride temporarily closed. But there's like five or ten people standing around this sign. So we walk up to them and we're like, why are you waiting here? And they said, well, one of the workers said that the ride's going to open again soon. So we have this moment where we're like, ooh, we could be like at the front of the line. And this would be great. So we decide to wait there with these people. And then little by little, like a line, a pre-line forms out into the park as word spreads. So we're waiting and then we're proud of ourselves. And then ten minutes go by. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and 40 minutes. And we're like, what are we doing here? And we're like, why are we waiting in this line? And we say, well, because this ride is going to be great. Yeah. But why are we still waiting? And we say, well, it's because the workers have, have come up a couple of times. And the workers have said, you know, it's going to open. So why did we wait? Well, we waited because there was something good. And we waited because we had the word of of trustworthy people that it was coming soon. So why do we wait? Well, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. I wait because there is something good. And I hope in his word. He's trustworthy. And so I hope in his word. And I stay in line and I keep waiting because there is something good. And he said... It was true. So I hope in his word. This word wait in English has all kinds of negative connotations. Like we don't like waiting. In ancient Hebrew, it seems like it might have some different connotations because it can mean look and hope and expect and linger for and look eagerly for. So it's almost like this word can have some positive Connotations. It's a very similar word, and it's often used to describe hope, which is a very positive concept of waiting. And so he says, we wait like watchmen wait for the morning. 
And he says it twice to reinforce this idea that what we are waiting for is good. And we are eagerly anticipating something good to happen. Like a watchman who's been awake all night on the wall just waiting for that sun to rise. That's how we wait. Eagerly expecting something good that we know is coming. Now a watchman's a very important job, but if you think about it, a watchman doesn't actually do anything. They have no control over anything. Does the watchman on the tower control like the, the, the way the earth rotates so that the sun will rise? Does the watchman on the wall like, have any control over the sun shining out in space? No, the watchman has no control. All the watchman can do is wait and watch. But it's an important job. You just think through some American history. You think about the watchman that was on the Titanic. Important job, looking for icebergs, but what can the watchman really control? Watchmen can't control where the icebergs are. The watchman can't even control how fast the captain decides to make the boat go. But it's an important job, nevertheless. Think about our American history. Think about those American colonists. Remember back in school, you might have had to memorize that poem about Paul Revere, one if by land and two if by sea. So remember, the American colonists, they know the British are going to invade, but they don't know how. And so they, they send up this watchman up the clock tower of the, of the North Church, and their job is to wait and to watch and to light up one lantern if it's by land and two if it's by sea. The watchman has no control over when and how the British will attack, but their job is to wait and watch, and it's an important one. So why does God make us wait so much. I don't know, but I wonder if it's to increase our trust, to loosen our perception of control. He gives us a job which should be clear in which that I I don't have any control here. I live with this American conception, uh, misconception, that I'm in control of everything. And I think God makes us wait to try and loosen that grip of control and say, like, listen, just wait and watch. You don't have control, but you have a very important job. Stay alert, watch, and wait. And just for clarity, we do wait, but we have so many good things that have been given to us already. We look into our past We have so many blessings from God. We look into our present. We are so blessed from God. We currently have salvation. We currently possess the Holy Spirit. We currently have his written word to guide us. Here we sit in and with his church. We wait for things, yes, but currently as we sit here, we have our health and we have our wealth and we have all the countless spiritual blessings that we could fill hours and hours of sermons with. We have so much, and yet certainly we would all agree we still wait because people, not everyone has wealth, and not everyone has health, and there are many tragedies, and there are many wrongs that we wait to be righted, and so our hearts do yearn for Christ to come and restore all things. And what theologians call this is this tension that exists between the already and the not yet. We already have these blessings from God, and yet we are not yet fully experiencing the goodness of God as we live in this broken world. And so we live in this tension of this already and not yet, and we read Scripture, and then it begins to make more sense because Paul wrote in Romans 8, for in this we are hope we are saved. 
But hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what they already have? See, Paul is saying like, hey, listen, we wait and we hope. That's the nature of our faith. It's what we're called to. Nobody hopes for something that they already have. And so in Isaiah 40, verse 31, it says, but those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. And so the psalmist transitions us from waiting into hoping in this psalm. And he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see, there's this this already and not yet tension right there. We already, right now, have his steadfast love. Right now, we have his plentiful redemption, and not yet have we been fully redeemed. He will, he will redeem from all iniquities. So what we already have is steadfast love. If you read through all the different translations that are available to us, it could read unfailing love, loving kindness, faithful love, constant love, loyal love. And so as you imagine all of the sins from your past that are present with you now and you want to worship God, but there they are, I'll just be reminded, no, no, like there's this constant and loyal love that was with you through all the iniquities. There's plentiful redemption. There's full redemption. His redemption overflows It's redemption in abundance. And so whatever it is, it has you in the depths. Wherever you end up, and this psalm resonates with you, and you're like, I'm with you there, psalmist. I'm in the depths because the guilt and shame of my past sins. Then Psalm 130 should remind you, oh, listen, cry out to God. He is merciful. He is full of forgiveness. And wait, I know things aren't how you want them to be, but let's wait together in the midst of his forgiveness and redemption, and one day he will redeem all our iniquities. Iniquities of your eyes. You say, like, oh, there are things that I looked at that I'm ashamed of. And God is telling you, like, listen, you're forgiven. And the redemption I give you is just overflowing out of your cup. It's like, well, there, were, there was iniquities of my tongue. I said things that I'm ashamed of. God says, yeah, yeah, confess that to me and then hear me as you cry out. My, my mercy is, is overflowing towards you. I have constant and loyal love to you. Oh God, I don't think you appreciate what happens in my head. The thoughts my mind, my imagination, and God is saying, listen, I have this loving kindness for you that never stops, never stops. God, I have iniquities of my body. I have done things. God says, listen to me. It's overflowing and abundant. And often the human heart will say, why would you do that? Why would you forgive me so much? It seems foolish. It seems reckless. It seems like a bad strategy. It just, is, it just astonishes me so much. It almost makes me tremble. It almost makes me fearful that I serve a God who is so full of love and forgiveness and redemption. 
Oh, Northgate Church, hope in the Lord. The difference between waiting and hoping is, again, it's very slight. But I think what differentiates the waiting from the hoping is the sense of confidence. You see, when you're waiting, you lose some confidence that things are going to turn out. So as we're waiting, we're exercising this faith. We're begging God. But when waiting is is compared with hope, which is slightly different, it's this sense of confidence. That it is good. I have love. I have forgiveness. And I will have full restoration one day. So we wait and we hope. How do we worship when we have sinned? We cry out to God. We wait for him. And we hope in him. Pay attention this week. What is it that's blocking you from worship? You say, I want to worship, but I feel like I just can't because I have the sin in my past. We'll cry out to him. Identify what that is. Wait on the Lord and hope in the Lord. Before we leave, though, I do want to challenge you in one other way. As we leave here today, let's be lights into the darkness. Let's go out of here and try to help people experience the love and the forgiveness of God. How do we do that? Well, there's people in your life that lay beyond these doors. There's someone in your life that is in the depths. And they're so far down in the depths that they can't even cry out. Because you and I may have been there as well. You're so far down in the depths, we can't even cry out. And so for those people, who is that in your life this week that you could cry out for? You could say like, oh, my friend, my loved one, my coworker, they're so in the depths right now, I'm gonna cry out for them. I'm not, I'm, not even, I'm not even gonna talk to them, I'm not even gonna approach them, I'm not even gonna try and give them words of hope. I'm just gonna cry out to God on their behalf. We probably have people in our life like that. We also have different people in our life. We have others in our life that we might need to go out from here today and wait with them. They're ready for our presence. They may not be ready for your words of hope, but they're ready for you to wait with them, for you to be with them as an ambassador for Christ. But there are other people in your life this week who need words of hope who need for you to share with them the hope that you have within you because without it, they just don't know if they can keep going. And so what they need from you is for you to open your mouth and in boldness, share about the hope that you have. Share some of your hope with them. There are three different types of people and they need three different things. And so as we leave here, we pray for the discernment of God to be active within us so that we can differentiate who these different people in our lives are. But as we leave here today, we leave as ambassadors for Christ. And some we will cry out for, and some we will wait with, and some we will share words of hope with. And if I could challenge you in one final way, if you are so overwhelmed with the forgiveness that God has extended to you over and over and over and over again, this is a strategy for how we change the world, ladies and gentlemen. You leave here today, and you forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. And people will be astonished. And it will capture hearts and minds. And so we leave here today with this calling on our lives to be ambassadors for Christ with this good news that we have heard this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do, Lord, we want to cry out to you, Lord, each of us has sins from our past, from this morning and from last night and from years gone by. And so, Heavenly Father, we we cry out to you, confessing our sins. 
And Lord, we wait on you. We wait for a day in which these plaguing sins will be gone away. And we hope in you, Lord. We hope, we are confident that in these moments we still experience your love and your grace and your mercy. And we hope for that day when you will return and restore all things. In the meantime, Lord, as we leave here today, we go forth as your ambassadors, Lord. Help us to have discernment to know who we can encourage and how. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our benediction as we go. Oh, Northgate Church, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. Amen.